Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's community cookbook shop. Today, I'm delighted to share another episode we've recorded just for the podcast. This summer, I had the great pleasure of visiting Diana Henry in London. Diana is one of my favorite cookbook authors. Besides wonderful, reliable recipes, her books are full of personal stories and essays that give you the sense of having a warm and insightful friend in the kitchen. So I turn to Diana's books when I want a good read as well as a good meal. She has regular columns in London's Sunday Telegraph and BBC Good Food magazine and has won many awards for her work, including a James Beard Award in 2016 and Fortnum and Mason's prestigious Cookery Writer of the Year Award in both 2013 and 2015. With her latest book, From the Oven to the Table, Diana shares her ideas for getting meals on the table with as little fuss as possible. My copy is full of bookmarks already, and I can't wait to start cooking from it. We talked in Diana's kitchen in London in August 2019 in front of her amazing wall of cookbooks. Here's Diana Henry and From the Oven to the Table. You have a new book coming out. This is your 12th book, is that right? Yeah, but then I'm going to sleep for four years now. (laughs) I'm not kidding. The next one is a long way away. Because the next one has been a very long project. I pulled this one up because the, the next book is called North and it won't be out. I mean, it really won't be out for four years. So I thought we'd just pull this one up. So I had another project to to be going on that was shorter. And what happens is, of course, you get sucked into the one thing. So North went completely by the by. Yeah. I have to set aside doing everything else or I will never get this, this really big book that I've been working on for 20 years. I will never get it finished. Oh. So this is the last for a while, Laura. Enjoy yeah. it. I'm going okay. to be quiet after this. All right. Well, I will enjoy <laughs> it very much. It's called From the Oven to the Table. If I think about how I got interested in you as a writer, it was probably gosh, 20 years ago or so with Simple Cooking Yes, book. yeah. Cook that's simple. funny. That's funny because people usually do it, they do it via Crazy Water or Pickled Lemons. And then there are other groups of people who got in via, yeah, Pure Simple Cooking, it was called in, in the, the States US, and it was yeah. called Cook Simple here. And that was a book I wrote after I had my first baby uh-huh. because I couldn't, I couldn't cook anymore the way I had been cooking. So I had to change it. I had to do a lot of stuff, which was about bunging things in the oven. And I did pure, simple cooking. Then I just kept coming up with dishes that use that approach because it's what I do mostly from Monday to Thursday. And I don't feel apologetic about that. I mean, it's not its not the kind of cooking where you build flavor. It's not like uh, its not like a beef bourguignon or making something where you develop flavor. It's about using big flavors and letting the oven do all the work. Mm-hmm. And then the book I had out a few years back, just called Simple, it had a lot of dishes that had this approach in as well. And finally, I wanted to do a book that only did this. Everything went into the oven. Some of the dishes, they also include the starch with it or the vegetables, so they are a complete meal in themselves. Not all of them, so it's not all one dish or one pot cooking, but there are sections then where there are, there are instructions on how to cook rice in the oven and potatoes in the oven in lots of different ways so you can put your starch in at the same time on a different shelf I am really an oven cook I really am I love it I think it's your friend in the kitchen because it does the work but also I just love the alchemy of it you put in whether it's a cake batter 
or it's just a load of very unpromising have date ricots that are a bit woolly, not fantastic flavor, sprinkled with sugar, or you put in a load of chicken thighs and chunks of sweet potato and maybe smoked paprika, and then when they come out, you sprinkle feta on that or chopped preserved lemon, or there's always so many things you can do. But basically, you put something into the oven that looks very unpromising, and look what happens. Yeah, It is golden. If you've just got decent ingredients and you've put them in at the right temperature and you've come back at the right time, it's very, very hard to go wrong. Yeah, And then beyond that, you need ideas. And I love the caramelization that takes place as well. I love food like that. I made a sauté recently for the first time in ages, and that's the kind of dish <laughs> that I cooked when I started cooking. You know, it was a you know sauté of just chicken joints with wild mushrooms and things like that. And then I added a bit of cream, very old-fashioned French stuff. And it was like going back in time because <laughs> it was like, I hardly ever cook like this anymore. I still like it, but it's so much more gentle, the end result, because I'm doing, I'm using a lot of big flavors very often and things that will caramelize and charred edges of pumpkin and so I'm a big also believer in um relishes the accessorizers of these things so you can cook very plain things in the oven and then while it's cooking you're just doing you're doing a sauce that all you need to do is chop it or stick it in the blender and then you have an instant accompaniment to go with it so it's always about big flavors but with minimum effort and the reason why I'm not apologetic about this even though it's I don't think it's cheat cooking I think you just have to think hard about ideas I just think if you're going to eat well during the week and you've got a full-time job and you've got children or whatever, you have to have these ideas. Otherwise, you're not going to sit yeah, down at yeah. the table. And I think the table itself is a very important place. I'm divorced. I've got two children and one of them's 20, the other one's in his teens. And I know that if there are nights when, because they're busy with their other stuff or my youngest has things after school or I'm out working... If we don't sit down for more than three nights together at the table, something starts to be missing. It, it really, yeah. really does. Yeah. And it isn't it isn't actually the food. The food is just the thing that gets you there. But it's where you, you look at each other and you talk and you chat and you have a laugh. Yeah. And the food actually, in a way, is only the kind of, it's just the anchor. But when there's not enough effort about that food, where, for example, I've been busy or ill or whatever, and my son has left to cook, and it's it's just chicken thighs and broccoli, and it's like, no, this just, this is, no, we can't do this again. So you do have to keep coming up with yeah, things. Yeah. So the, the meal is important, very important, and yet not important at all. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, because the book is called From the Oven to the Table, mm. and you have besides lots of recipes for the oven, a really lovely essay about the table in the book as well. Yes. And I appreciated it because I feel like family meals are almost romanticized oh, now. Exactly. And your take on the table, you don't see it through rose-colored glasses. No, I think it means many things to, to many different people. For a start, not all of us sit down at a table at all. And it's just in Western culture, really, that we do that. But the thing of eating together is also, it can be fraught with difficulties. And I don't want it to sound like we're all having to be, you know, putting roast chicken and apple pie on the table every night. I think it's a terrible pressure for women. I think it's terrible expectations on children that you have. I think it's just, it's a pressure on everybody. Sometimes the table is not a great place. If you look at it, even in film, if you look at American Beauty, you know, you know that when they're finished, it's when something is actually thrown 
from the table against the wall. So it goes outside of that square or circle. So it's where feelings can run high. I don't think you should see it necessarily always as a good place. And it has been forced on us as well. If you look at, I looked at some online films of old American information films I didn't think existed. (laughs) You can just Google them. And it's kind of like saying, oh, well, you know, the daughter and the mother are changing because father is coming home at the end of the day and they feel it's right that they should change their clothes and be ready for the family dinner. It's a very oppressive thing as well. But I think it's more positive than anything else. And I think that we should have it as a place. Even if things go wrong, I think things can go right there. And I think more goes right than goes wrong. Yeah. And it's a place for friends as well as family. Yeah, absolutely. I had friends around recently and they were kind of motley lot. I find it quite difficult to give, to put people together who are from very different kind of backgrounds. It's, it's work on the part of the hostess. And I'm quite lazy in that, in that regard. But I invited lots of people around. It was kind of hodgepodge of different people who didn't know each other. Some people who were passing through London, old friends who'd moved from up the road. And at the end of the night, I mean, the food had been, it really had been quite ordinary in inverted commas. It had all been done in the oven. It was pretty simple. But at the end of the evening, there's all this torn bread around. But even better than that, there were little groups off the table where people had pulled their chairs together, two or three chairs, and they'd had their little huddle. Somebody else had had their little huddle. So they, this big group of people had kind of hived off round the table into these little groups. And I thought, apart from sustenance, this is what food is about. Mm-hmm. It is about getting there together and having this focus that then people break away from, Yeah. in fact. But the act of actually eating together because they have to pass things and they have to share things, that immediately makes people communicate and engage Mm -hmm. with each other. Yeah, yeah. So food is much more than just something to eat. Yeah. Always. As the host, are there things that you do to make sure the evening sort of goes in that direction? Sometimes I do things very fancily and I have my linen cloths and I have silver cutlery and I love all that. And sometimes literally, look at the state of my table at the minute. (laughs) I shove the books up to one end and I put a roasting tin on the table and there's nothing wrong with that. You've got to give yourself that freedom. I wouldn't have people in in the middle of the week if I didn't just think, okay, I mean, lots of people that kind of like horrified. They didn't think you should put a roasting tin on the table. I wasn't brought up like that. You would never have done that. I have no issue with it whatsoever. I think it's good. Margot Henderson, I love her style. She's married to Fergus. He has St. John Food and Wine, which is very kind of essential, iconic, bad word, but anyway, restaurant here in London. Margot just, you know, she just sticks a risotto on the table in the the saucepan. And, And I think... Yeah, I think that's important. I think you have to be like that. Yeah. And I think you should just do what you feel like on the day. I don't think there are rules, Laura. I really don't. Yeah, good. <laughs> so the oven, lots of people, um, we were discussing briefly earlier, consider summer to be the anti-oven time. Mm. But you have a lot of ideas for sort of summer recipes here. Well, I just, it's just, you know, it's in the corner of the room. It's not obstructive. I mean, we don't have it in the center anymore. It used to be the hearth and now it's not. It's kind of been hived off into this box with dials. I have it on a lot in the summer because I'm not, I'm not a great barbecuer. I find it really hard work. That whole thing of looking at, you know, where are the embers now? Is it the right time? And then how long are you going to have to look at? So I just, I'm not a great barbecuer. So I tend to just stick the oven on, have the back door open and we're still out in the sun and the oven just does its work in the corner. So I don't find it makes the room that much warmer than it might otherwise be. I cook in the oven all year round, but I do love it in the autumn. I'm kind of very glad when it gets back to that time, September, October, and it's like, oh, great, it's going on now. It's going to warm the kitchen up. And you can smell the smells for ages as things are cooking. Yeah. Your first book you wrote while your older son was a baby. And now I just met him. He's, what, 
21. <laughs> Can you believe that? How were your boys in the kitchen? They were actually pretty disinterested because it was my thing. And I think your children kind of see what you do as their competition for attention. So for ages, they would just be, oh, mom, oh, just give over. It's just fuel. But the eldest one has completely come round now. The first thing I did was I left him on his own for a week when he was 16. I had to go away and he was at home by himself. And basically, if you've brought them up eating good stuff, they want good stuff. And then they learn to make it for themselves. So he wasn't going to buy in ready meals or anything. He just wanted what he usually had. Mm. So he made simpler versions of things, but he did it. Then what's happened in the last, because he's at college now and he's in with a lot of friends who are all very interested in food as well, make their own sourdough and stuff like this. He studies medicine, so he's very methodical, unlike me. He takes a recipe and he tries different versions of it from different books until he puts a blend together that he likes himself. His ragu, his his, his meat ragu is better than mine is. It's really delicious. And he does it very carefully and he cooks it very, very slowly. Mm. And he's horrified at my shortcuts. <laughs> so he adds to his repertoire gradually and he's expanding out all the time and he has his own pile of cookbooks that he uses in the front room and he keeps them separately the things that he particularly likes one of which is mine only one of which is by me the others are by, by other writers you know. thank good well the first one <laughs> pure simple cooking is oh. in his pile because he goes back to that again and again because yeah. it's just there's lots of seared stuff or shoving stuff in the oven in that book so he can do that but I think they get to it if they like food I've never made a big issue of it I have never fought with them. I think the other thing you do is take them out. I mean, they do, they love going to try new things. They like going to new restaurants. They like restaurants wherever in the world. And we went to New York last summer and they just, you know, they're still talking about all the places that they ate and what were their favorite places from, you know, good burger joints to much fancier places. I think it's as important as having given them a love of reading, really. I think it's an enriching thing for the rest of your life. If you have pleasure, I do something you have to do three times a day. And I wouldn't make it a battleground. I mean, my youngest still eats bread that I don't think is very good, you know, (laughs) kind of like factory sliced stuff and too much cereal. And he'll find his way. It's, yeah. It shouldn't be about the brand, and I'm not purist about it. But I just think if they eat well, they will want good food in the end. Yeah. Do they influence your writing or your recipes? They do because I have to come up with things that they will like. I mean, I have to cook for kids. And I have done for years. I mean, Ted is an adult now, but from every night of the week. So it does because I'm thinking up that kind of dishes. Also, they're pretty critical. They're mean. I have sometimes done a dish which I thought was quite quite simple, but this would be good and someone would find this easy to do and I'm not overdoing things because of just being a food writer and layering another degree of flavor on top. Ted has said to me, I don't really know what you're trying to achieve with this dish. And it's like, excuse me, just, just <laughs> supper? They will really notice the texture of things, funnily uh-huh. enough. I will do dishes and he will say, everything in this is too soft. You need something crunchy here and you don't have something crunchy yeah. in it. Or he will sort of say when there is, like I did a dish of mackerel once, mackerel with a kind of Moroccan broth and dates and spices and things. And he said, you need something to cut through this. You need preserved lemon in this. And he was actually quite young at the stage. And I was a bit embarrassed because I thought, oh, you sound so pretentious. (laughs) You sound so much like the son of a food writer. And I said, please don't say that in anyone else's house. But, you know, he was right. That is what he was right. That's what he needed. I think they, I think you do really 
because I use big flavors and I love contrast. And I think if you cook like that, your kids really do, they, they notice it. You can't not. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the essay you have in this book about the table. I have always found your essays to be one of my favorite parts of your books. I mean, your recipes are great, of course, but I love, love, love reading your essays. How did you decide that this was the way that your books would be presented? You know, with every one, it's different. The first book I wrote was called Crazy Water Pickle Lemons, and that was very essay-led as well as very recipe-led. I've always found it something I have to balance, and every book is different. I'm quite unusual in that I think some writers are very recipe-led and some writers are very writerly writers, and I feel I'm both, Mm -hmm. and it's not the same balance in every book. When I wrote my last book, How to Eat a Peach, which which won a big award here and did very well and is the book I'm most proud of in terms of writing, some people said to me, well, that's it then. You can't you can't do those kind of recipe-led books anymore. And I thought, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I should just, maybe I should, maybe in fact, I should stop the recipes altogether. Maybe I should just be writing books about food. And then the recipes sneak back in. I found I want to write this thing, which I think is, is kind of useful for people to have. So it's not something I can keep down if you know what I mean so the recipes come up and there's only two essays in this I wouldn't like to write a book ever that only had recipes I think what's the point of that I think there has to be some kind of context or your view or your take on it and I always want them also visually to feel they've come out of somewhere they haven't just you know proliferated in my head there come from a home the next book I'll do will be more a balance of more writing to recipes but it changes with, with everyone. Yeah. But I think that's good. I think I'm incredibly lucky that people let me do different kinds of books. My publishers have always, have always said, okay, you want to do one that's more, more recipe-led? Fine, get on with it. You want to do one that's more written? Get on with it. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I'm not stuck in a box. Yeah. Would you do one that's all essays? Yeah, I would if I had a good idea. I would. Yeah. What I think would be hard, and I'd like to do it, but I think it would be hard to, because I, I notice other food writers who I greatly admire, and I can see that it's a challenge sustaining a narrative that didn't have any recipes in it at yeah. all. That isn't just essays, but it is a complete journey. That would be difficult and a challenge, and I'd love to do it. But I have—I never write books I don't have ideas for. I don't sit down and think, oh, what am I going to do next? Usually, it's there. I mean, I've got three books ahead, mm-hmm. so I know what I want to write over the next 10 years. And sometimes they change, but, you know, if something came up like that and, and it, I could get it commissioned, yeah, I'd do it. You're saying that you are thinking three books ahead, plus you write a weekly column for The Telegraph. How in the world do you come up with so many ideas? I don't know. Honestly, I just think I have been really interested in this subject since I was very young. Yeah. And I read a lot of writing. And food is life. It's not just yeah. about food. And if you travel, if you go anywhere, if you step outside the door, if you look at... You know, I've got a, there's a really lovely turkey shop up the road for me. If I look at the tomatoes there, I'm thinking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I could do this with them or that with them. And if you go to, and I went to Vietnam last December after wanting to go to Vietnam and cooking Vietnamese food in my kitchen for 25 years, I actually went to Vietnam. So suddenly, where did all this come from? Where did yeah. they get stuff from? They've got influences from China. They've got influences from, it's just, it, everything crosses over. I will never know enough about the crisscrosses of food and flavors and ingredients that have taken place. And I will never get on top of all the techniques I could get on top of. It is endless. As well as that, I love words. So I think I am unbelievably lucky to get pleasure out of these two things. Something that's very practical and something that's very cerebral and a thing which crosses over both those bits in a way. Yeah. But I don't seem to run out of ideas. I'm always so curious. Your food is really from all over the world. You live in Britain, you are Irish, but 
you don't have a particularly just rooted in one place. I think that's because I, I was brought up in Northern Ireland. It's not hard to understand at all. I was brought up in this very tiny place where there was nothing exotic and where I didn't travel until I was 15. We used to go to the airport in Dublin and watch planes taking off to go to other places. So this desire to get beyond the horizon was really huge in me. It was in my head way before it became a reality. So I have explored the world I mean, in a way that my children can't even imagine now because they just go where they want to go. Mm -hmm. But I was going places via the kitchen way before I could actually get there. So that that's it for me. Isn't it interesting? Because I'm from a very small town as well in Illinois. And people will sometimes say, well, you don't seem like a small town person. And I'm never quite sure how to take that. It's loaded in a way because, well, what does a small town person seem like? And I sometimes think that the fact that I'm from a small town, as you said, is what makes me so open to trying so yeah. many different things. I think people from small towns have big imaginations. I honestly <laughs> do. Sometimes I think my kids have had too much. They've been exposed to too much. They've been excited by too much. They haven't had to find it themselves. I just had to go. Yeah. I had to kind of pursue things, even just in my head. I kind of think being bored is good when you're a kid as well. You go and you, you know, I puddled around with kind of like cooking and reading and stuff like that. And I had to make my own entertainment and everything is so immediate and available now. So I think it's very good to make your own running where those things are concerned. I think an emptiness of options sometimes is quite good. I do, honestly. Because you have to forge your way. Yeah. And you've always really liked cookbooks, it seems. Since I was really young. My first one, I was given when I was about six by my grandma. So it was a big cartoon type book with this big dog and cat that cooked together <laughs> and I really a lot of people here really like it the pictures are by Ursula Sedgwick and every so often on Twitter people will put up the picture of the cover and everyone goes oh yeah that started <laughs> me off it's a very loved book in Great Britain I got other little ones junior cookbooks that I got from school clubs and then I bought my first one when I was 12 and it was a lot of money it was a hardback and it was by Prue Leith and it was about mm entertaining it was about cooking for friends I really loved this idea which was not what I was brought up with at all we didn't have dinner parties although my parents had parties sometimes but I thought this idea of dinner parties was just so amazing so glamorous I bought that book and it was about how to cook for them extravagantly or medium cost or really very cheaply I just kind of thought this is I'd like this like this would be good fun yeah. so that was the first one I bought and I kept going I have too many now. There was a time from the early 80s to the probably about 1996, I bought a load. I spent a lot of money. I have no idea how much the books that I have amassed actually are worth, although they're separately insured, I have to say. But now I get sent a lot. It's funny, you do appreciate the books you have to buy. I know that sounds awful because I buy a lot of American ones still. I've got three American shelves there and I love oh, my yeah. American books because I feel very, it sounds ridiculous, but I feel, I hooked onto that Californian thing. As soon as Alice Waters came along, I read about her in The Observer here. Mm-hmm. She's been a kind of like guiding light in a way, but I love all sorts of American food. And I go I go to look and see what's happening in the States for a kind of shot in the arm, what's mm -hmm. happening in LA, not so much San Francisco now, what's happening in Portland, what's happening in New York. I would not necessarily say the cooking in New York now is better than it is in London, because I think you can get fantastic food in London. But I have learned an awful lot from cookbooks. You do develop ideas and develop your tastes from eating, of course, but I think I have learned just as much simply by, even just by flicking through cookbooks. Yeah. Because you think, oh, they're putting that with that. They're putting dill and coriander together. 
yeah, it's just like you get this look into someone else's taste and mind and what they're trying. Mm -hmm. And I find that completely fascinating. I never stop being interested in thinking about flavor. Yeah. Sometimes I don't get to sleep very well at night. And it's what I'm thinking about. I'm kind of thinking, oh, that would be good. If I did this with this, would that work as well? I think it's a lovely thing to think about. Yeah. Are there any recipes in the current book where you felt like you came up with like a new flavor combination or something that you hadn't necessarily tried before? Oh my goodness, this is a hard one. <laughs> I have to really think about that. Most of these are pretty classic because when you do a book like this, you don't want to, you know, it's going to be used every day. You don't want to frighten the horses. No, but you don't really. You don't want to kind of think, oh, let's put such and such together with something that you never heard before. Oh, I did like this though. Here there are whole baked aubergines and there's a saffron black cardamom and date butter melting mm. inside them and that came from a Turkish Cypriot restaurant in London was doing something very similar oklava and she's a she's a really oh, yeah. she's a really good chef I think she did a date butter and I think she did it on bread but then I thought I add black cardamom which is kind of smoky mm -hmm. and I add saffron as well which will give it a really good color and the whole thing as well of Pairing aubergines with butter only came to me with this book because of Olya Hercules. Mm. She was talking about cooking aubergines in butter rather than olive oil, which mm -hmm. is what we most commonly associate it with. If they are richer. They're more buttery. They're more delicious. They're more melting. It's just completely different. Yeah, yeah. So that would be a thing which in that book I thought, yeah, this will work. And that makes you, if you, if you have that with couscous on the side and a salad or something like that, and some yogurt, that's a meal. That is very, very simple, but only came about because I thought, yeah, those would work. Yeah. And they're not usual. But in a book like this, it's just about cooking on weeknights uh -huh. or cooking easy things for friends at the weekend. So you don't want to be, I'm not a big believer in using a lot of ingredients when you don't need to. Yeah. You're exhausted by the time you get this stuff out of the cupboard. You don't <laughs> want that. Terrible. Yeah. Shopping for it shouldn't be a, no. a full chore in and of itself. No. When you use other people's books, are you a, I'm going to try this recipe as it's written person, or do you just start riffing and improvising from the get-go? I hardly ever use anybody's recipe just as it is written, but it's not because I kind of really want to riff. It's just because I think, oh, that might work better in a very small way. But I do get books and I, I want to cook my way through them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I want to see what, what they're tasting. Yeah. But it's inevitable that you will not do what anybody else does. Yeah. I've just been on Twitter this morning and it's so good. Like on a Sunday morning, you know, there's lots of us doing the same kind of job. There's Gil Meller down in the Southwest in England. There's my friend Mark Giacchino as well. And we're both kind of putting things on Twitter that we've or Instagram that we've either eaten or cooked. And I love to see these conversations like just mackerel, just grilled mackerel with a salad of parsley leaves, flat leaf parsley leaves and lemon and olive oil. You don't need anything more than that. And it's when you kind of, when you have these little chats with people, not only is that really good for ideas, I like the decency of that. I like the kind of sharing of that. I think that's lovely that somebody takes a very small thing and they're not, <laughs> look at my recipe. Yeah. It's just basically, this is a great combo. Why are we not eating this? And it's kind of, it's less rather than more. Yeah. So it's not always about being clever. Yeah. And a lot of it is about generosity. It's about, try this, please try this. Yeah. Because you'd love it. So whose books do you like? Now, I absolutely, I love Gil Miller's recipes. Mm -hmm. I think he is our best creator of recipes. I mean, I look at things that he does with British ingredients. Well, sometimes he uses other things as well. And I think, God, why didn't I think of that? 
He's working on a vegetable book at the minute that I've seen. I'm not sure when that's coming out, but I've seen some of it and it look it looks great. His books come in and I want to work my way through them. Yeah. So they're really delicious. Um, I love Mira Soda because her reference points are completely different. I mean, I do not have Mira's background. I was brought up with European flavors and then kind of American ones and British ones. And she has this whole Anglo-Indian um, thing and Indian, right. she loves Eastern flavors. And I look at Mira's dishes and they're big big flavors which I really love you know I can cook eastern food but I can't create eastern food that's not what I do Mm -hmm. and she just she just juggles with all of those things I love especially love people who will yeah who will bring me things that I just could never have thought of myself and also which don't exist out there which are kind of like where did you get that or how did you come up with that yeah I think it's very exciting yeah very good when you think about trends in food right now are there any that you particularly love and any that you just wish would go away? I hate trends. I really there we do go, hate then. them. <laughs> I mean, I have to write about them every so often and I do notice them. But I think they're about, they're kind of like the antithesis of food because they're about fashionability. And the worst thing about food, I mean, it's been necessary because it's made people pay attention to it. But the worst thing about food is that it's cool. I wish it was great. I wish it was ordinary. I wish it was like in Italy, this is what we expect from food every day. I don't want it to be a badge of fashionability at all. I have really enjoyed the sour thing, though. That became a cool thing to look at because of fermentation. And I think that's really added to our kind of excitement about food. And I'm looking forward to Mark Jackano's book, Sour, that's coming out next mm-hmm. year, I think, in the States. So things do happen and we and we gain from them. But I, my heart sinks a bit when I see a piece about trends. Although it is inevitable. And the vegetable trend, I mean, if, if even that can be called a trend anymore, is a thing. It's going to yeah. change the way we eat. And it has to change the way we eat. Yeah. So I suppose it's good and bad with them, but I do slightly inwardly groan when I hear about them. But things change all the time, all the time. Yeah. Sorry not to be getting back to the States. So I love my trips to the States. Yeah. I love meeting my American readers. It was so funny that um, that Americans should say what was good about me was that I was so unfiltered. Because I can't, <laughs> think, I can't think of any people more unfiltered than Americans, but there we are. But I hope to get there in the next book. And we will welcome you with open Thank arms. Thank you. Of Cannot wait. Thank you, Diana. A sincere thank you to Diana Henry for letting me take up the better part of one of her Sunday afternoons this summer. Diana mentioned a few other authors in the interview, and we'll put links to their work in the show notes so you can check out what they do as well. As always, you can get 10% of a copy of From the Oven to the Table and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code podcast at checkout. If you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.